Friends, the second scripture lesson today comes from the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen now for the word of the Lord. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, he will be like him. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join me in prayer? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In 1951, Edward R. Murrow hosted the first broadcast of This I Believe. It was a daily radio series, and it ran for five years. The point of the radio show was to invite individuals to compose their own personal credos and to share them with others. Fifty years later, the project was resurrected with This I Believe statements collected and published in a book. To submit one's own statement of personal belief, these simple instructions were given. First, tell a story from your life that has shaped your beliefs. Second, be brief. Third, name your belief. Fourth, say what you do believe, not what you don't believe. Fifth, be personal. In other words, speak in the first person. 16-year-old Josh Rittenberg cont contributed a brief essay to this collection, and I'm going to read it for you now. I'm 16. The other night, while I was busy thinking about social issues like what to do over the weekend and who to do it with, I overheard my parents talking about my future. My dad was upset. Not the usual stuff that he and mom and I guess a lot of parents worry about, like which college I'm going to, how far away it is from home, and how much it's going to cost. Instead, he was upset about the world his generation is turning over to mine, a world he fears has a dark and difficult future, if it has a future at all. He sounded like this. There will be a pandemic that kills millions, a devastating energy crisis, a horrible worldwide depression, and a nuclear explosion set off in anger. As I lay on the couch, eavesdropping on their conversation, starting to worry about the future my father was describing, I found myself looking at some old family photos. 
There was a picture of my grandfather in his Citadel uniform. He was a member of the class of 1942, the war class. Next to his picture were photos of my great-grandparents, Ellis Island immigrants. Seeing those pictures made me feel a lot better. I believe tomorrow will be better than today. That the world my generation grows into is going to get better, not worse. Those pictures help me understand why. I considered some of the awful things my grandparents and great-grandparents had seen in their lifetimes. Two world wars, killer flu, segregation, a nuclear bomb. But they saw other things too, better things. The end of two world wars, the polio vaccine, the passage of civil rights laws, they even saw the Red Sox win two World Series. <laughs> I believe that my generation will see better things too. That we will witness the time when AIDS is cured and cancer is defeated, when the Middle East will find peace and Africa grain, and the Cubs will win the World Series probably only once. I will see things as inconceivable to me today as a moonshot was to my grandfather when he was 16, or the internet to my father when he was 16. Ever since I was a little kid, whenever I've had a lousy day, my dad would put his arm around me and promise that tomorrow will be a better day. I challenged him once, how do you know that? He said, I just do. I believed him. My great-grandparents believed that, and my grandparents, and so do I. Don't worry, Dad. Tomorrow will be a better day. This I believe. Many of you, I am sure, have personal philosophies that have been shaped by the stories of other people that have helped you to make sense of your lives. You may even consider some of these people to be saints, whether they have died or are still living. Thankfully, the world is full of saints. The church is a distinctive body of people for whom the story of Jesus Christ enables us to make sense of our lives. The church marks All Saints Sunday to remember those persons who were in our midst and have gone before us and whose lives the church has made sense of in light of the story of Jesus Christ. They're remembered not because they were saintly, though some of them surely were, but because they were children of God so loved by God that Christ spent his life for them whether at the end of their lives or in baptism, we give the same witness. See what love God has for us, that we should be called children of God. Indeed, that is what we are. To be children of God means a lot of things. For followers of Jesus, it basically means that the story of Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection, continues to inform our lives. 
It means that we do not merely refer to God in passing, but that consciousness of God is essential to the shape of our lives. We live our lives, whatever shape they take, in God's presence. There is such richness and diversity of life stories, perhaps because they do not follow or fit into a pattern. The author of Hebrews imagines the witnesses living together in a cloud. And when I'm privileged to, to hear the rich stories of individuals, I often learn about how they spent their lives, what work and relationships occupied them, what and whom they cared about, what motivated them, who influenced them, what occupied that most tender place in their hearts. I often learn about their personal philosophies. Almost always, I learn that there is something they are leaving or have left unfinished. And doesn't that make sense? That everyone leaves this world with something unfinished? In death, we inevitably leave loved ones, spouses, children, grandchildren, friends, our church, who will have to go on without us. We leave relationships, sometimes in disrepair. We leave our labors, some work unfinished. We leave to future generations a world that is in precarious, fragile condition, uncertain that tomorrow will be a better day. Born into a world that began before us and will continue after us, of course we must leave that which we care deeply about unfinished. Whether this fact is accompanied by regret or acceptance, with anxiety or in trust, in other words, how we handle this fact about our existence can be deeply informed by the story of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps best known for his martyrdom, spent two years of his life in prison. By the age of 37, Bonhoeffer was a well-established theologian and Lutheran pastor. Hidden beneath his public activities, he was also a counter-spy secretly resisting Hitler's regime, planning for German life after the fall of Hitler, and a willing accomplice in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Under suspicion for treasonous activity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent two years in prison. During that time, Bonhoeffer wrote many letters to both his good friend Eberhard Bethke and his fiancée Maria von Wedemeyer. His letters tell the story of a young man coming to terms with the disappearance of his future. To his friend Eberhard, Dietrich writes, I sometimes feel as if my life were more or less over. But you know, when I feel like this, there comes over me a longing, unlike any other that I have experienced, to have a child and not to vanish without a trace. 
I would tell you all this and much more. Perhaps this is why when Eberhard's wife gives birth to a child, she and Eberhard name him Dietrich. At first, on more than one occasion, Dietrich suggests to Eberhard that he hold on to his letters and poems from prison, hoping that his friend will preserve his name somehow in the world. While in prison, however, once Dietrich's role in the plot on Hitler's life has been discovered by the authorities, and the plot to kill Hitler in July of 1944 fails, his fate is sealed. Dietrich knows that his prison sentence will end in a death sentence. He begins to ask questions that he avoided asking a year earlier. It is as though he decides to strip away and abandon everything that made him somebody and just be. His questions are remarkable for all he's willing to leave behind. He asks his friend, why must we make something of ourselves by theological leadership, political courage, or even saintly suffering? Though he still affirms what he had written in his book years earlier, The Cost of Discipleship, he is now more wary of heroic Christian virtues. To his friend, he writes, I think that even in this place, we ought to live as if we had no wishes and no future and just be our true selves. He comes to believe that God depends on us to be our truest selves and nothing more. For some reason, it takes crisis or catastrophe. For Bonhoeffer, it took a death sentence to strip away all the ambitions of being faithful so that we can just be faithful. Such a reckoning often happens at the end of our lives rather than in the middle of it. Why must it take a natural disaster, political tyranny, stage four cancer, or a pandemic? Must we be last-minute creatures like the woman in Flannery O'Connor's story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, about her, whom her murderer says she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life? When Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized that his fate was sealed, that he would be put to death he stripped away not only his former ambitions of being the best disciple he could be, but also all the ambitions that he had projected onto Jesus. It was only as Dietrich had come to terms with all he would leave behind, unfinished, that he also came to terms with what Jesus, too, had to leave behind at his death. Jesus had to leave much unfinished. He had to leave his friends, disciples, the world he loved so much in a state of terror and sorrow. The kingdom that he preached and taught about had not yet come. 
God's will had not yet been done on earth as it is in heaven. We tend to have to come to the end of Jesus' life, all the way to Good Friday, to see everything stripped away. What is nakedly revealed there on the cross is Jesus just being faithful. It takes that moment of Jesus hanging naked on the cross for us to see what God reveals. That though one's body is broken, one can be whole. Or that there is a difference between suffering and suffering as a consequence of doing God's will. Or that even at the moments of greatest pain, when we cannot, be, when we cannot claim to be cured, we can be healed. The world is not as it should be. War still rages in the Middle East. We still have no cure for AIDS or every cancer and are vulnerable to pandemic. We face an ecological crisis. We still have much work to do to realize the kingdom of God. We have to learn to live and to die with this knowledge, just as the saints who lived and, and died before us did, and as Jesus himself did. Jesus left us unfinished. Though unfinished, through Christ, we too can be made whole. Amen.